We've been using this book called The, the Mystic Heart, Wayne Teasdale, and a couple of people have come up after the last couple of Sundays and said, you know, this is kind of a dense book. <laughs> and I think I chose it because it is the invitation for this time of year to put aside some of the busyness, right? And do that inward work. Do that, that inner work that allows us to sustain us through the following year. You know, traditionally in ancient times, this time of year with the, the lessening of the light outside and the ending of some of the agricultural chores that people were engaged in, this was absolutely the, the invitation to go within that part of the year where people would spend more time talking with family members, when people would spend more time in their devotional practices. And what I think is interesting is it's quite the reverse now, isn't it? I bet half of us right here in this room are kind of revved up more than, than settled down, aren't we, with um, thinking about Christmas parties and getting presents and trying to uh, arrange get-togethers with family and friends and things like that. Well, I want to try to sort, short-circuit this a little bit. Um, I think we all actually deserve and need the downtime. I'm really making the invitation to all of us. Uh, certainly, uh, you know, we're going to have uh, the occasional party or two this time of year. But I also want all of us to acknowledge, if we can, that this quieter time of year is that, if you will, pregnant moment when we can make changes in our life that really nurture us into the next year. So last week, and this week too for that matter, we talked a little bit about meditation and I thought I would start us out with a, a joke about meditation. All right, it's called Three Yogis. So there were three yogis doing meditation in a remote cave. One day a sound is heard outside the cave and after about six months, one of the yogis says, did you hear that goat? Once again, silence. And about a year later, one of the other yogis said, that wasn't a goat, it was a mule. Silence. About two and a half years later, the third yogi says, if you two don't stop arguing, I'm out of here. <laughs> All right. And, and you know what? I think this joke illustrates maybe why the inward journey to some of us is a little bit scary, right? When we think of meditation, when we think of spiritual practice, sometimes it seems like we're setting the bar way up here high, that we're talking about, you know, five years of meditation or, or doing spiritual practice for three or four hours a day. And if that's right for you, that's very cool. And, and you can be my mentor. <laughs> but what I know for most people, even if we can just spend 20 minutes a day in meditation, even if we can take a spiritual break right in the middle of our day at work or, or with whatever is going on, we benefit from it even in the smallest of slices. All right, so today we're going to do some profiling. No, don't worry. It's, it's not airport passengers and it's not police profiling, but we are going to do some profiling and I think it'll be kind of fun because what I'd like to do today is profile what it is to be a saint. I think this will be a little interesting. Wayne Teasdale in the book, I think, did a pretty good job of, of looking at the panorama of saints. And I use that word very loosely because, of course, almost every spiritual religious tradition has its ideas of saints. Now, it might be a yogi or a swami in the Eastern tradition. You know, it, it might be um, um, like the Buddha in terms of, uh, of an arhat or, or someone who really has, has transcended earthly form. It might be someone in our 
our own Christian traditions that, you know, like saint as in a Catholic saint or something like that. And what Teasdale did was he found some of the common themes, some of the common elements that go across all these different backgrounds against all these different religious traditions and the people in them whom we think are kind of doing it right, kind of doing it in that more spiritual way, who have made that inner journey and made a fair amount of progress in it. So I wanted to share that with you today. And, and I know there are a few of you that take notes. Don't bother today. There's actually an insert in your program that, that has these elements in it in case you want to look at it later. Okay, so the first one uh, that he says is an element of universal spirituality is a moral capacity in code. And you know what? Morals are kind of on the out, aren't they, in America right now? I, I mean, I, I, I'm saying this, I, I suppose, in a, in a kind of an argumentative way, but some of the old traditional morals are kind of out. And I wanted to talk just about a couple of them for just a minute. There was a study last year that found 91% of Americans routinely lie about matters that they consider trivial. Now think about this. And in fact, they said several times a day, 91% of Americans lie about matters that they consider trivial, and 30% will even lie about important matters. And I want to throw out one more <laughs> sort of damning feature of us Americans, <laughs> if you will. Um, so a couple of Sundays, Sundays ago, I talked about the crime rate in America. And yes, crimes against people, uh, rapes, uh, murders, assaults, uh, things like that, are at an all-time low in America right now. Not since the 1950s have we personally been as safe. Now, I, I know... Uh, this, all the statistics support this, though. We might think we're living in a dangerous society, but the truth is quite the opposite. In terms of crimes against people, America has never been safer in terms of the percentage of people you know, that have something like that happen to them. So we're actually quite safe. But guess what's way on the uprise more than ever before? Theft. People stealing. And in fact, in doing a little research, <laughs> you're going to laugh. So I went to someone at Fred Meyer who is in charge of the Holiday Theft Minimization Program. <laughs> they actually have a name for it at Fred Meyer. And this poor guy, he said, oh my gosh, Fred Meyer loses uh, several hundred thousands of dollars per store per year in the Portland metropolitan area due to, due to thievery during the holiday season. And I thought to myself, oh my gosh, with all the sensors and with all the alarms going off and, and things like that, is it true somehow that we have just gotten to be a society where telling the occasional lie and, and, and shoplifting is simply so common that we don't even think about it anymore? Okay, I'll just leave that there. But in the profile of a saint, let me tell you, there's no lying and there's no stealing. And as you can imagine, saints uh, you know, have different values according to what country they were raised in and things like that. But some of the basic ones stay the same. 
All right. Next thing that is an element of universal spirituality is solidarity with all living things. And I love this one. The idea here is simply that those people who have this higher level of spirituality keep in mind not just themselves and not even humankind only, but in their plans and in their efforts, they take into account all living things on the planet. So, for instance, uh, you, you know, if, if someone in India who who is uh, uh, is planning some kind of a promotion, they'll think, well, does this pollute the river as well? Does this have an impact on sea life or things like that? And the idea being, you know, really, if you're connected to God, you're connected to all things. Doesn't matter whether they're animals. Doesn't matter whether there are natural resources in terms of forests and things like that. There's simply an awareness that all living things are connected. The third thing I don't need to say much about, it's deep nonviolence. The saints of this universe are not contemplating bombing anyone, right? Remember the, the, the funny bumper sticker, who would Jesus bomb now? Well, the answer, of course, is no one. No one. And truly those committed to the path of, uh, uh, of becoming more spiritually aware, at some point along that path, simply cannot condone violence of any kind. The next element I think is kind of funny because most Americans would view this as a weakness, not something positive, and that is the idea of humility. So let me explain for a moment. It isn't that you don't accept and let other people know that you have done good things. That's, that's fine. In fact, that's one of the reasons that people know that services are available, right? If Mother Teresa never let it be known that there was a healing center that she was in charge of, no one would get healed. So that's okay. But the idea around hu humility is that we release our ego attachment to being right, to being on top, to being the best, to being recognized, to being approved by others. Those things don't become necessary anymore once we release our need for that. It's fine for us to simply acknowledge that we have done things, but when our ego is being fed by it, when it's our internal need to be approved by others, then there's a problem. All right, the fifth element we're going to talk about a little bit more, and that's the idea of spiritual practice. Um, I want to, though, could you cast your mind back to about 100 years ago? Okay, so maybe not everyone here can think back 100 years ago, but if it was 100 years ago, what would you be doing after dinner on most evenings with your family? Guess what the top three things were? Reading. Someone said reading. That was the first one. And, and I'll even be more specific. For the largest number of people, it was reading something spiritual. Very often the habit after dinner a hundred years ago was that one of the, the heads of the family, the mom or the dad, would read scripture. But certainly it was reading. Uh, guess what number two is? Sleeping. Sleeping. I love it. All right. Now that may have happened more often than not, too. Uh, the second one was doing some kind of like a craft activity, like quilting together or making soap together, something that today we would consider like a craft idea. Of course, back then, it was important to have quilts. It was important to have soap or candles or whatever. So it was an activity that the family benefited from, but it was the family together doing some kind of an activity. And... Um, 
Number three was actually playing, um, uh, playing little games, like uh, a hundred years ago you might have played um, um, cards or you might have played canasta or something like that as a team. But number one was reading and in particular doing some spiritual activity. So what's number one today? Television. television, yeah. So we've traded in studying scripture for television? Let me read to you what Wayne Teasdale says about this. I think it's a great quote. He says, It is really only through an intense life of spiritual practice that we become aware of our true human condition. As long as people are content not to look, not to embrace their ultimate vocation of becoming deified beings, they will chase after every distraction that comes along as a substitute for a life of true depth. In the United States, for example, entertainment has become our collective spiritual practice. We live from TV show to TV show. We live from the Tonight Show onto the Tonight Show, or excuse me, the Today Show onto the Tonight Show. The personal cost is great, deeper ignorance, confusion, and despair, and less authenticity. So I want to tell you, if our collective spiritual practice in America right now is watching TV, is it any wonder that our moral capacity has changed, right? If a hundred years ago we were reading from some kind of scripture, maybe not a Christian scripture, but it might have been from the Jewish tradition or something else in our homes as a family, if now instead we're watching reruns of Married with Children, Right? Do you know what I mean? Even the best of the, of the first-run TV programs right now has a very different kind of moral code. Things like lying, things like cheating are pretty much portrayed as being normal, as being accepted, aren't they? And the, the bulk of TV shows these days, and, and if not by all the characters on the show, certainly by one or two of them. Perhaps we are becoming then a nation that is allowing the media, allowing the TV to actually dictate what we believe to be true and good about our own selves. Maybe Wayne Teasdale is right. Maybe our, our collective spiritual practice is TV watching. Wow, if that is true, we really need to be careful, don't we? If those are the lessons that we pass along to our kids, if that's the lessons that we keep bombarding our own self about what's okay to do, what's preferable to do, what's fun to do, oh my word, there are some good TV programs out there. But wow, if collectively that's what we hold to be good and true, we probably need a little tune-up. All right, let's move on. The next one is the idea of being mature in your self-knowledge. Simply knowing what's going on in your own head. Most of the great mystics and saints of all times really understood themselves. They understood uh, what buttons they have that can get pressed and how to get out of that problem. They really understood their own physical and emotional selves really well and so that they weren't living a life of reaction to stimulus, but really had a thoughtful idea of who they were, what was important to them, their own priorities, all of those kinds of things. The next one 
is selfless service, excuse me, of simplicity of life. Now, this is another one that sometimes we Americans think of as a weakness rather than something that's good, right? We're all about the American dream. We're all about, about having the, the big house and the new car and things like that. And there's nothing wrong with that. Wayne Teensdale is very clear that it doesn't mean that people who have a high level of spirituality in their lives aren't comfortable, aren't, don't have a car, don't have a home. Quite the contrary. But what he says, if this is your goal in life, right? If the getting of the stuff is the important part rather than the people, rather than the other intentions you have, this is the problem. Because he says stuff requires time. Stuff requires energy. If you have three cars, if you have two houses, if you, do you know what I mean? If, if the goal is to accumulate more and more stuff, then you will find yourself spending more and more time with that stuff. You become stuff-oriented. You become oriented towards getting more. And he says, this is the real pitfall here. And so most people who lead the spiritual life, even though they are very comfortable, even though they have what they need, have a, a sparseness about them. You know, maybe you can think of it as the, the um, sort, sort of modern minimalist movement, right? They have the lovely apartment, but it isn't just packed will of stuff that needs to be taken care of. So give a thought to that. The next element of universal spirituality is selfless service. Simply that idea that among other things, we are here on the planet to give of ourselves to others. And so there might be a thought, first of all, of our association with God then our association in how we can be of service to the world, and then only third, you know, how can I get what I need? He said that that is typically the orientation of someone on this path towards sainthood, that, it's, uh, that really it's God first, then how we make a contribution to our friends and our family and the world, and then only third do we think of our own needs. Last but not least, in these nine points of universal spirituality is simply the prophetic voice, that idea of also then sharing what we have learned. Um, And this can be as simple as sending out one of those postcards that Mike was talking about, really. It doesn't have to be that suddenly you're the oracle on Delphi or or that you can make uh, divine pronouncements. It's really just sharing your own spirituality, your own spiritual nature with other people. Because that is how, that is how we share the good in this world. If we keep it bottled up, and part of this, I think, is back to that idea of acquiring. It's not until we begin giving parts of ourselves away that that true fulfillment, that true, that true spiritual fulfillment is able to reach into us and make a difference. All right, so these are nine steps or nine uh, habits of highly successful saints or however you want to look at it. Uh, they're in your program, and the reason I put them in your program this week is I thought this might be a place, if we're doing this inward journey together this month, a place to look at some of the characteristics in your own heart and in your own lives and see if maybe we can make a few tweaks into what we do in the world. If we do happen to be one of those 91% of people that now and then tell tell the odd little uh, white lie, I think they're called, 
maybe it's time to stop that. Is there really any purpose or benefit in it? You know, really give it a thought. If we're one of those people that, that tends to collect a lot of stuff, is, is that how we want to go through life? Or maybe is it time to take a really look at that? How much of your time are you using on the stuff and the acquisition of the stuff and getting the insurance policies for the stuff and getting the stuff repaired and getting the stuff tuned up and getting the stuff repainted and getting the stuff tuned and retuned and licensed? Do you know what I mean? Maybe it's time to take a good look at the stuff in our lives and whether we're using it or whether it's using us. What I know for sure, somewhere in these nine elements of, uh, of my proposed sainthood for you all, <laughs> I'm putting you all up for sainthood, but <laughs> there's a catch, and that's simply that we might want to take a look at some of these elements and places that we can do a little fine-tuning. All right. Before we close today, I have also, um, on that same little handout in there, I ran across in the, in the material this week a lovely spiritual practice that I simply wanted to share with you. And so feel free to take it home and try it. It's called Lectio Divinia, and it's from the uh, tradition of the Catholic Benedictine monks. And really, it's a lovely and very specific form of meditation that I've uh, been practicing for this month and really enjoyed it a lot, and I wanted to share it with you. So it has four parts. The first one, Lectio, is simply reading, simply going back to that 100-year-old tradition, right, of taking some kind of a sacred text or something inspirational to you. It could be the Science of Mind magazine. It could be scripture. You know, it could be a Louise Hay book. You know, I'll leave it up to you, something that is divinely inspirational to you, simply open it up and begin reading. And the idea of Lectio here is just read until something catches your mind's eye. So it doesn't have to be more than a few sentences or a few paragraphs. Something in there will grab your attention, something that maybe you want to think a little bit more about, whether it's health or love or joy, and, you know, whatever words go around it in that book. Then the next part is reflection. It's called meditatio. And simply the word means to reflect on it. So what does that word or that phrase or that idea mean to us? And I'd like you to do it in kind of three levels. So what does it mean to us in a physical sense or literal sense? What does it mean to us in a metaphorical or symbolic sense? And then what does it mean to us really in a spiritual sense? So for instance, maybe your reading would uncover something about love and relationships. The first level would be, okay, what does this mean in terms of literally my loving relationships? Let me contemplate that for a minute. <laughs> then the idea of love itself or, or, or something at a higher level. And then finally, what does divine love look like in my life? And so you kind of contemplate that on three levels. The next one then simply is oratio, and, and that means prayer. So the third part of this is simply to anchor these first two parts in prayer, to simply accept in your own heart more of the love you were reading about, more of the joy you were reading about, whatever the idea was that you found in this uh, uh, spiritual book, you're going to embrace it, you're going to embody it, you're going to accept it in your own life by doing a prayer. And then last but not least, my favorite part is simply to rest. You're simply going to take another few minutes to allow this information, this contemplation, and this reading to really enter your own heart, to take it from the headspace of, of kind of reading and thinking about it to allow it to move a little bit lower into your own heart.
So I hope you have fun with this. It's a form of meditation. It's been in the Catholic Church for probably, uh, probably over a thousand years, probably longer. And, uh, and it's been found to be very useful. I've certainly been enjoying it. But what I also know is you may not have 45 minutes and that's fine. That's traditionally about how long it would take to do that. But if even you can squeeze out 20 or 30 minutes in your, in your busy day to try out a, a new spiritual practice or to, to simply meditate or something like that, I know you'll benefit from it. All right. So your homework this week is to take another step into sainthood. Now, I know we're not all going to get there next week. I got to tell you, when I was looking over the list of nine, I went, oh my gosh, I got some work to do. And so I'm sure we're all in the same boat. And that's the good news. We're all in the same boat together. So I simply ask you for your homework this week to take a look at that list and see if there are some areas where you can do a little fine-tuning in your own spiritual path, where that path of divinity just calls to you a little bit stronger. And I know whatever you select to work on is going to be exactly right for your personal spiritual path. So let us pray. There is one power and one presence in this universe. It is that thing called God. And what I know about God or spirit or or the divine mother, whatever you choose to call it, what I know about it is that it is all-powerful. It is that place of perfect balance and peace and grace. And so even in the midst of this holiday season, what I know about God is that there is that perfect poise. There is that ability for the inward journey. There is, in God, perfect balance and time to accomplish everything that needs to be done. And I know this is true in general. I know it's true about me. I know it's true for each person in this room. Grace is simply upon us all. And so for this week and beyond, for this entire holiday season, I know that love is present. I know that the the people rather than the things, the ideas rather than the stuff, are foremost at hand and on our minds, allowing us to have this holiday season with the people we love in ways that really count. And I'm simply grateful for this, grateful always for the inward journey. I simply let it be. And together we all say, and so it is. Thank you very much. Thank you.